Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live multi-speed technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Glad to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what we're going to call this segment. I think we're going to call it something like owning your data or local data or data, maybe. I don't know. It's been a theme of the show for a long time. It's just I'm starting to re-experience this personally on a whole new level. Now, if you haven't checked out last episode's uh, last week's episode, I invite you to do that. You can, of course, check out all of our episodes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. I would invite you to do that because I started on, I, I guess you could call it a personal journey, a personal data journey last week. And um, that has very much continued into this week. And like I said last week, I, I don't know if there's a easy way for me to go on the air and try to unpack everything I'm going through in a personal way. Uh, it suffice to say it's big, and I think it has major ramifications, good things, major ramifications for the show. And um, so I, I wanted to take just a couple of moments and talk about FreeNAS, because I have always kind of assumed that FreeNAS and ZFS has become the dominant enterprise go-to file system. And in my personal experience, that's true. However, I'm finding as I'm on the internet and talking in various forms, and I've become a part of various different Facebook groups and followed some various people on Twitter that talk about data organization, data storage, data structures, things like that, um, that at the community at large, there is a lot of discrepancy of what the most reputable, most robust, most secure, most reliable, most trustworthy file system out there is. And I have to tell you, as a person that has been playing with file systems since as long as I've been playing with computers, and as a person who has implemented file systems for large companies, small companies, my house, I have some pretty strong, pretty informed, pretty, I think, pretty educated opinions on file structures or file systems. And so I wanted to just take a moment, and if you haven't, let's say you're a person that has not really investigated file systems and or a, a, a network uh, attached storage solution. Okay, so let's start with this. Why would you want to have a network attached storage if you don't already have one? Why not just sync all of your data up into the cloud? And let's just say, for example, let's just say for the time being, for the sake of argument, that we're not talking about privacy. In this case, we're just talking about practical uh, impl- you know, implementations, practical considerations, practical thoughts. Why would you want to host your own file system? Why would you want to host your own network-attached storage? And what makes it better than just plugging an external hard drive into your computer? And a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that for backup. A lot of people do that for their primary data storage. A lot of friends of mine build computers with two or three hard drives in them. And I've, I've talked to people on the phone. I've taken calls right on this very program where people have asked, how do I do this? And I say something like, Hey, I would recommend that you use um, 
you know, like either ext4 or XFS. Um, and if you need more space than that, uh, then I always usually advise people to use something like LVM. And all those are fine solutions, and it's the solution that Red Hat would tell you to do if you are a Red Hat customer and they sent a Red Hat consultant out to you. But truthfully, I, I'm not sure it's the best. I think network attached storage is the best, and here's why. As I've been as I've been doing research, one of the one of the first things I started to research is who makes the most reliable hard drive. And it's interesting because manufacturers actually do a ton of research on this, and they publish all of these specifications online. They just don't make it very easy to find. And so I started digging through, and it turns out, if you're curious, Seagate has the highest failure rate and has had the highest failure rate for five years straight. Most uh, most manufacturers are in that high 90s percentile of uh, drives that don't fail within four years. Uh, Seagate is low 90s, uh, sometimes high 80s. And uh, so uh, to, sh- to shorten this all up, the most reliable hard drive that I could find for data, for, for data storage, five-year time span, was the Western Digital Red. The Western Digital Red is available in four terabytes, six terabytes, eight terabytes, 10 terabytes, and 12 terabytes. So I started doing math calculations and started to look at what the most cost-effective way to store data was. And what I found was the 12, ter- the 12 terabyte drive sells for $350, and so that's a cost of $29 per terabyte. The 10 terabyte drive sells for $250, which equates to $25 per terabyte. The 8-terabyte drive is $224, $28 a terabyte. 6-terabyte drive, $150, $25 a terabyte. And the 4-terabyte drive, $100 and $25 a terabyte. So what that means is buy the 4-terabyte, the 6-terabyte, or the 10-terabyte. Stay away from the 8-terabyte and the 12-terabyte. The 12-terabyte being the most expensive ter- uh, you know, dollar per terabyte. Now, 2-Bit in the chat room says that he has a couple of Western Digital Blue Drives that he's had for almost 10 years, and they still work. I will tell you that in the research that I've done, and I don't have any, I have had, I have really, I've just been super lucky with hard drives. And I think that's part of my problem. I think it's made me a really bad IT consultant, if I'm being honest with you, because I really haven't put a lot of consideration into drive failures because I've just not experienced it. I remember back in the early 2000s when I first started doing IT, and I remember everybody, I was working at at a medical software shop, and I remember everybody at the shop talked about the quote-unquote Hitachi Death Star. The Hitachi Death Star, because there was a drive called the Hitachi Desk Star. And everybody nicknamed it the Hitachi Death Star because it died all the time. Now, everybody around me had laptops that had Hitachi Death Stars in them, and they all died in a year or two. I had mine for six years, and I never had a problem with it. In fact, I can tell you, in 15 years of doing IT, I personally have never had a hard drive die. Ever. On the, with the, the, the exception to that being, I think I had an external USB drive that after I had moved all my data off of and given to my sister or my mother to store some data, I think at one point that died. And I kind of looked at it and went, huh, it's the first drive I've ever had that died. But I usually get rid of them before they die. And, uh, and so uh, doing a lot of this research, uh, I, I have learned a lot, like about the Western Digital Blue. That is their economy line. It's their desktop drive, the drive that they designed to sell that somebody that doesn't know what they're doing walks into Best Buy and says, I want the cheapest thing here. What do you have? And then they go, well, Seagate has this and Sandisk has this and who else makes, you know, hard drive, spinning rust hard drives. But they go through all those things. Western Digital wants to compete in that bottom barrel entry level price point, And so that's their Western Digital Blue. And I've not had 
any problems with the Western Digital Blue. I have one on my desktop right now that I kind of use for just kind of workspace. You know, you download a bunch of files and you need to organize them. I just need some place to unpack some stuff and kind of mess around. To me, that's what the Western Digital Blue is. And it's worked great. And I've had mine for four or five years. Now, some of the things I've, some of the things I've come across while researching this, in a perfect world, you'll cycle your drives no more than every five, or no less than every five years. So if you have a drive in service and it hits that five year mark, if you want to be fairly certain that you're not going to experience a drive loss, then you swap that drive out. And if you want to be almost a hundred percent sure, there's no such thing as a hundred percent sure, but if you want to be almost a hundred percent sure, there are some businesses out there that are swapping every two years and they're pulling those drives out and putting new ones every two years. Now, again, up until now, I've not done any of this because I've never had a drive fail. And part of it, the other part of it is, uh, I had, the beginnings of a drive failure in that a drive fell offline, but I didn't trust it anymore. And so I went and replaced it. I'm now using that drive as a backup. Um, and oddly enough, it seems to work just fine, but ZFS continues to save me as the, as the, as the drive fell offline, ZFS didn't even care. In fact, I didn't even know that it fell offline. It wasn't like I experienced a performance degradation. I went into to, I logged into the FreeNAS box to make a configuration change. And I saw that I had an alert clicked on the alert and it said, one of your drives been offline for a month and a half went oh geez i should probably do something about that i kind of i kind of need those drives so the as far as calculating drive space if you want the best drives out there my recommendation based on my research is western digital reds and um of the western digital reds i suggest you stay away from the eight terabyte and the 12 terabyte unless you app the eight terabyte i don't even know why they offer it because it's a dollar less than per terabyte than the 12 terabyte. It's $3 more than every other drive they offer. And so I, I really don't understand what the purpose of that particular lineup is. So it's probably the worst one out of all of them. The 12 terabyte, yes, it's $4 more than per terabyte than every other drive there. However, if you're absolutely crunched for space and need every spare uh, space that you can get on a drive, the Western, ter- the, the Western Digital Red 12 terabyte might be the way to go at $350. So I am refitting my my NAS with 10 terabyte reds. And so it's going to cost me about a thousand bucks and I'm doing a four drive array. And that's a really dumb array for ZFS one, which I'll get to in a minute. Um, but that's what I'm doing. And uh, and and so the nice thing about ZFS and the nice thing about free NAS is even with LVM, my beloved Red Hat LVM, something I'm very, very, very comfortable with. Anytime I have a client and they say we want to do you know, XYZ, I always say, well, is it on LVM? Because if the answer to that question is yes, I really don't care what your existing storage solution is. I know I can whip it into shape because LVM is flexible enough and it's easy enough to work with that once the, once the storage pool is created, I, it's, a, it's a matter of just rejiggering drives. Like it's, it's a very simple thing to do. So I, 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 I'm very comfortable with LVM. But ZFS removes all of the technical complexities, right? Because even LVM, if you've never done it before, if you've never administrated the thing before, it can take a little bit of work. It can take a little bit of time to learn the system, to learn the commands. There was a U, there was a GUI utility, but I don't think they're maintaining it anymore. If they are maintaining it, it's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't work sometimes. I don't know. There's, there's an issue with it. I don't know what it is because I don't use it. I just, I do everything from the command line, but it takes a little bit to get comfortable with LVM and it takes comfort it takes a little bit to un- to wrap your head around the process of LVM. Now let me tell you what it takes to get ZFS set up or FreeNAS set up. You literally download the ISO ISO and burn it to a a flash drive. Or write it to a flash drive, I guess. I still use the term burn it because I was, you know, for for years and years and years we burned DVDs and CDs. 
So now it's just, to me, writing the ISO uh, is burning it. But write it to a flash drive. Install that to a separate medium than your storage pool. So that is to say, you want to have, however many drives your storage array is going to have, you want to have one additional drive. Now, in my case, I used a SanDisk Compact flash card um, because they're inexpensive, uh, they're they're reliable enough, they're fast, and um, they're cheap to swap. So it's very, very simple for me to open the case up and, and swap the, the, the compact flash card if I ever need to. Interestingly enough, there is a major, major vendor. For any of you out there that are saying, well, it's a bad idea, Noah. You really shouldn't be doing that on a compact flash card. The number of reads, the number of blah, 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 blah. You really should be doing that on a real hard drive or a real SSD. Let me tell you something. There is a major manufacturer of very high-end uh, equipment that does a ton of read writes uh, in a configuration state, and they're using a SanDisk compact flash card in all of their appliances, and it works fine. And that's running a Linux kernel. So it's a very similar operation. Uh, in my case, uh, I've had my free NAS box with its compact flash card, and I think that thing has been running, for, well, since 2015, since the end of 2015. So we're almost, we're just about at the three-year mark, or four-year mark. And I've had no problems with it at all, except for that one drive falling offline, which interesting left when I reseeded the drive, it actually came back online. I just didn't trust it anymore. And I'll explain right now why I couldn't trust it anymore. So when you come upon ZFS, ZFS was designed from the ground up to be the most robust, reliable file system out there. And it doesn't take a lot to set up. It really takes no knowledge at all. You put all the drives in the machine. You put in your compact flash card or whatever it is you want to use for a bootable drive. You install uh, um, FreeNAS, which is the same as installing any other Linux distro, and you turn the box on. And the very first time the box comes up, it actually has a little start run wizard that will say, hey, uh, I see that there are a bunch of drives. You want to use them in a ZFS array? Yes, I do. And then it's going to ask you an interesting question. It's going to ask you how you want to lay that drive array out. And that's kind of what I wanted to dig into a little bit tonight. Again, in case there's somebody out there that has never done this before, or maybe you're like me. Maybe you're like me and you Googled the answer and said, I, listen, I don't have time to dig into all this. Just tell me what I'm supposed to use. And if that's you, I'll just tell you right now, you can stop here. The answer is Z1. If you want the answer to, if you're just going to pick one and you don't know, you don't want to dig into the intricacies of performance versus space versus cost versus the, if you just want to get something up and running, make an array Z, uh, ZFS1. And use that. And and once I explain what each one of these do, then you can circle back and make a different decision if you think your situation requires it. So the most basic array that you can do is a striped array. Now, this is something even if you've never used ZFS before, you're probably familiar with. We have this we have this concept in traditional RAID. We have this concept in LVM. We have this concept. Basically, any file system out there supports the concept of striped drives. And striped drives work something like this. If I have four, four terabyte drives, I quote-unquote, stripe them together or string them together in a line and I get 16 terabytes worth of space. Four, 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 four. Uh, four times four is 16. I get 16 terabytes of space. So I get 100% use of the storage capacity. And um, the problem is there is no parity. There is no failover. If one drive fails, you're host because the data is spread out over those uh, four drives. Now, my understanding is it has a maximum capacity. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That's that's something else. Disregard. Uh, so the second uh, second most common configuration that you can do is uh, 
a mirror. And a mirror is essentially where you take two drives and you mirror them. Whatever happens to one drive happens to the other. And so you have a, a drive to- fault tolerance of one drive. If one drive fails, the array is fine. If more than one drive fails, you have a problem because it's only mirrored between those two drives, right? Uh, Nunix in the chat room says it's literally the same as RAID, just without the uh, hardware controller. Z1, or RAID ZFS Z1, is four drives. If uh, Assuming a four-drive array, you have a parity disk of one. And so if you lose one drive... In any any of the one drives in the entire four drive array, you're still fine. That 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 the array will still function. If you lose two, though, you're in trouble. ZFS two or RAID Z two, you can lose up to two drives because there's it's a two parity system. Um, if you lose, uh, and then there's RAID Z three, which you can obviously has a full tolerance of of three drives, so you can lose up to three drives in the array. Now you might say to yourself, self. Why would I not go with the highest amount of fault tolerance? And the answer to that is the amount of space that you lose. So with red uh, raid, obviously with a stripe dive, you get 100% of the space available. With raid Z1, you're going to lose 30 some percent, 30, I think 8% of the array capacity. So you'll get, uh, if you had a 36 terabyte array, you'd get to use 26 terabytes of that. The rest are eaten up by your parity. If you have red RAID Z2, you're going to lose 31% of your array capacity. You're only going to get 69%, so you have 25, 20, or, uh, excuse me, 25 terabytes. And obviously, so on and so forth, depending on how many drives and what the, uh, what the uh, storage capacity to each one of those drives are. And so RAID Z3, for example, you only get 58% of the entire array. So it's almost like saying... You're getting half the storage capacity, which isn't great. Now, RAID Z2 times two, or RAID Z2 uh, times two, or, uh, times, uh, times, so you'd have, let me think here, two sets of two RAID Z2, you would get 15% of the available storage capacity. So it's it's one of those things where you you have to make a decision for yourself on how much money you want to spend, because this is going to get pricey, right? If you look at the price of drives that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, I mean, if let's just go with the 12 terabyte drives because they're most expensive. That's $350 per drive. Can you really afford to blow $700 just on redundancy? Well, it depends on what you do. You know, if you're a law firm or if you're a medical firm, yeah, you may very well say, hey, you know what? 700 bucks, that's nothing. I mean, if we lost data, it would cost us tens of thousands of dollars. Spend the money. But if you're Noah Chalaya and your your data consists of, uh, you know, pictures and videos and stuff like that, they're very important. But you know what? No configuration of RAID Z is going to uh, amount to backups. And it's not going to equate to backups. And it's not going to substitute for backups. So backups are an entirely different process, which we'll get into in a little bit. Again, your calls go to the front of the line, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Of course, you can email us live at asknoahshow.com. Tony's calling from Canada. Hey, Tony, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. I uh, just had a question for uh, uh, permissions in Linux. So I have a co-worker of mine that I set up a Linux box for because he's just building a web app. And I, I'm sort of running into an issue where I kind of constantly got to keep uh, re-setting uh, the permissions. So there's, like, for one, for example, one of the things that he's trying to do is he's just trying to do file uploads uh, of profile pictures. And 
it seems like so he's creating subdirectories uh, every time he uploads, and he's using a um, uh, MVC framework called Laravel. But anyways, w- whenever he uploads a file, it seems to be not having always the correct permissions, and I got to um, you know reapply the permission. So what I've done so far is I've added his because he's connecting in uh, using uh, SCP. Okay. And uploading his files and modifying his files like that. And it seems like, uh, so I, I added his, his account that he's using to the www, because we're using Apache, www-data uh, group. And I've added, and I've modified all the, um, all the files and directories to have that group and have the correct permissions. But I do find that I'm constantly having to, to change them back. So is there any way that, that I know that when he creates a file or, or modifies a file that it will it'll keep the permissions as they are and and not do anything. Yeah, so typically that's where the mode setting comes in and what it allows you to do is is tell is basically tell the file system, "Hey, in you, when when new things are when new things are created in this, yeah, and actually the chat room is saying the same thing. New, new makes it sounds like a bad UMass. Uh, when, when new file systems or new files or new folders or whatever is created and imported into this file system, um, what do, what by default do we apply? And, um, and so that's where that UMass is. So usually file permissions are, are a are represented in in three numerical number three numerical numbers like seven 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 and it's a combination between read write and execute and depending on how each one is given a given value one three five seven and and how you add those permissions up together is re- represented by a single numerical uh, digit right and so seven being all of the permissions together read write and execute um, and so putting a U mask on the front if, sorry if I said did I say mode change. If if you if putting a U mask on the front of that is that's what's going to tell it. No matter who is logging, as long as they're authenticated into the directory and as long as they have permissions to write files to the file system, here is the same file permissions you're going to automatically enforce on this particular file system. Okay. Uh, now, if 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 I may, uh, I guess two follow-ups to that. Would that apply mm-hmm. to uh, directories uh, or subdirectories? So if I were to uh, like set that bit uh, you were saying. Um, uh, would that also apply to subdirectories? Yes. Yes. If you did it, well, right, so and, and so it it so what? Um, let me think about that for a second. So if you like, let's say you did UMask, UMask, and then you set you set a permission. Yeah, it would. Sure, it would because it's going to apply well, everything like, everything within that directory, which will include other directories. Okay, so so like for example, if I have the like the image upload directory, and then he creates a subdirectory, uh, like his application creates a subdirectory within that directory, and then starts uploading files, all of that, I guess everything underneath that should be okay. So correct. And now then, uh, to, to be clear, to be clear, and and uh, the chat room is pointing this out for me. To be clear, <clears throat> if this wasn't evident from before, the UMask applies to new files that are coming in. It tells the file system what to do with files as they're stored. So if you had a list of files that were already in there that were problematic, you might have to fix those by hand. But that's an easy thing to do. I mean, you can, you know, Jamad Takar will recursively do everything in the directory, figure out what you want those permissions to be, shown, again, Takar for recursive, set who you want to own the, those files, and that's a, yeah, I mean, it's a five-second thing to apply that uh, at the top-level directory and just, and just, add it down then umask will help will fill in the rest of that as you as you move on 
is the command uh, umask? That's the command? Yeah, yeah. Umask, and then you... I, I'll tell you what, I'll put a, a link in the show notes, but it's umask, and then a space, and then depending on what you want the default file permissions to be. So, you know, uh, if you wanted... If, well, this is stupid, don't do this. But if you wanted the users to have all the permissions, all of the places, umask space 777. Right, okay. Yeah, but don't do that. And... Uh, and- if a user, so if, if my uh, coworker, if he were to create a file, would it still be under his, um, like, would he be the owner still, or would the owner be, say, in this example, www.data? Uh, who would be the owner of the file? If that would, the, uh, if the... The and if you got the, if the user if the user creates if uh, so if the user creates a file assuming that nothing else has changed right like assuming the user just normally authenticates uh, with let's just say he SSH it in right and right and touch uh, file.txt inside of directory he is going to own that file so then by extension if you were to connect in remotely uh, using like SCP or if you were to um, mount an SSH connection as a file directory and you were to create a file, the user is still going to, by default, own that file. Okay, so i got to make sure then that because my application is running as www.data, i got to make sure that that group stays www.data in case he's modifying files and stuff like that, right? Yes. Okay. All right, that pretty much uh, yeah, that answers it. Thank you so much, Noah. Okay, yeah, you bet. And I'll, again, I'll have a link for you in the show notes about uh, on... on um, on UMask, so you can kind of read up on that just a little bit. Uh, Nunix in the chat, oh yeah, Nunix in the chat room says the same thing that um, that uh, user is still going to own the file, but he says an easy fix might be to change the user's primary group to www data, uh, which is that's actually what I've done and on my FreeNAS box in my house. The default group for all of the all of our family members is family, and that way I just set all of the permissions based around the fact that um, you have that the the people that I want to access that are in the family group. And then only people that are in my family are in the family group. It just kind of makes sense. Seven, or, uh, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. Chris, West Virginia. Hey, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah. How you doing? Good, man. What's going on? Well, uh, to the last conversation, if you were doing a share with, say, a Freemaz, can't you set the permissions on the share to always have a certain group regardless yes. of who creates the file and or a certain user so yes. you would have to keep that in mind wouldn't he that well so if it's freenas um yes there is a way to f- there inside of the so freenas is weird because freenas essentially if you think about it has there's really two different permission structures. The first permission structure is on the file system itself and that's controlled inside of the data set. So when you go into storage you create a data set and um, inside of there, there's a permission set, and that's what to write to the file system. Now, there's a second permission set, and that is in the the sharing se- excuse me sharing section. And so, when you create the SMB share, when you create the NFS share, there's another permission set that you're able to set there, and another, and and that's really w- where you want to be more restrictive because the data set might be set up for, um, let's say, users, right, user data. And then inside of a user data directory, some users might have full permission, whereas I'll give you an example. In my living room, all of the TVs that are on my house have access to a Samba share that is the media directory. Now, I want my kids to be able to pull up any of the videos and TV shows. I do not, under any circumstances, 
want their user accounts to be able to delete videos. I definitely don't want the user accounts that are tied to the to the um, NVIDIA Shield boxes to be able to delete f- content. So that user account uh, does not have write permissions inside of the directory. Interestingly enough, it does have execution privileges. Why? Because in Linux or Unix, the execution privilege in a folder allows you to open the folder and so if you don't have execution privileges on a given directory you can't open uh, you can't open directories um so that it has execution doesn't have right um in just a side story but yeah in in freenas that option exists it it sounded to me like his setup was just a straight linux uh, you know uh, uh, yeah. if you're not if you're using freenas there would be no reason to mount it as an scp share right you would just uh, you'd use smb or nfs or one of the 15 million file sharing protocols that are built in if it's just a straight linux box and you're just storing some stuff on there especially wwd it sounds like it might be a web server i doubt that's a freenas box well, I kind of missed the beginning of that conversation. My yeah, was dropped, and I had to drive over the hill to uh, actually call you. So now I'm sitting in a church parking lot. <laughs> well, anyway, getting closer to God, Jesus. Anyway, uh huh, um, was not yeah, to get closer to Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. <laughs> the reason I called is something I found out today, and I wanted to share with the uh, with the small business uh, community that listens. Um, okay. You know, I've been in IT for 20 years, and I've been running network cable and, and uh, cameras and Wi-Fi, and, and then I started my own business, and lo and behold, we had a meeting with the fire marshal here in the state of West Virginia today, Uh-oh. and I didn't know that I needed to have a license to run low voltage. Oh, really? And, uh, yes, apparently, uh, in the, well, apparently in several states, you have to have a license to run low voltage being... Um, Ethernet cable that's carrying power over Ethernet or um, alarm systems. Uh, I guess there's something that goes along with elevators that has low voltage. So basically anything (laughs) under 80 volts is considered low voltage, and I have to get a specialized electrician license. So in speaking with the fire marshal, if he caught me at a client site running cable Mm -hmm. and asked for my license and I didn't have it, he has the right to cite me, and uh, then I would get a fine and have to go pay a fee. And so I thought it would be interesting that, or it would be beneficial to anyone who's doing networking uh, in a small business or for themselves uh, to maybe look into that for their own uh, their own state. Now here it's it's twenty five dollars for the test. It's a twenty five question open book test by the twenty seventeen uh, National Electric Code standard. The, the fire marshal said it was an easy test. You just have to have it. Right. And a $50 annual fee for the license. So we're in the same boat here in North Dakota and Minnesota. I, 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 we also have to have it's, – it's, here it's called a low-voltage wiring permit. And essentially what it does is it allows you to run low-voltage, non-line-level voltage. That is to say not 120-volt AC at 20 amps. Uh, you're able to run low-voltage um and and that's what like you like you described it's it's you know they use it for security systems but in the network trade cat 5 is low voltage right i just got done doing a job in minnesota where we ran a ton of low voltage wire uh and like it's it, here again it's an easy test it's they actually i think there's a core i don't know if the course is actually required or if it's just something that it's an easy way to go through the class but that's what we did and um it's uh it's like an 8 hour class you sit through it and they basically tell you now, when you're running low-voltage wire, it's not advisable to touch the wires to live AC voltage because that can kill people, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. They, and it's just, it's kind of dumb. 
dumb stuff. Don't uh, don't uh, don't run through water pipes. Don't run through air vents. Right. I was told I didn't have to take a class. I just had to go to yeah any uh, electrician store or or you know um, a Granger and you buy a 2017 NEC book. And there's a small section for the low voltage. Mm-hmm. Study that section. Take the book with you to the test. Pay $25 for the test. you got four hours to take a 25-question test, open book, and then they give you a license and you pay for that. Yeah, so I, I don't know I, that the class is even required here. I just It was one of those things where it was like my motorcycle test, right? My mo- the way that the motorcycle licensing works in North Dakota, you have the choice. You can either go take the test on your own, or you can go pay for a class that they do at the weekend, and you walk out with a certificate for your license. Right. So, I, and I, I'm not, I don't remember. Thank it's you. so long ago. I don't exactly. I don't think the class was required. I just think it was an easier way to get the permit. But yeah, if you're getting into small, and you know, the, here's a stupid thing, and I'll just I'll use this as, as a launching point to talk to, to 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 vent about something else. This is the kind of stuff that keeps people out of small business, right? Because when you went into small business, you looked at something and went, huh. I can run network cable in my house. I would love to do this for other people, and I do a better job than most people because I actually care. And so you go out, and you do good work, and you spend a lot of time, and you put some sweat equity into it, and you're proud of your work, and you take some pictures, and you please the client, and you charge them a reasonable rate, all of those things. And then you get hit with some, you know, I mean, for lack of a better word, crappy regulation that where they start finding you. And you know what's funny? What's What's frustrating to any of us that have worked in this industry for any amount of time is you start to see... You start to see the the picture being drawn on the wall, right? It, the electrical code in 20, I think it was 17 or 2018 changed to require uh, GFI circuit breakers inside of the electrical panel. And if you don't know what a GFI circuit breaker is, it's the kind of breaker that every time you turn on the vacuum cleaner, the breaker trips. And you don't really understand why, and so you go back down here. Now, the other problem, in addition to the fact that they trip way more often falsely, is the fact that they cost about six times more than a regular breaker does. And those are now required in every electrical panel in the United States. And it's just, it's super frustrating because the only person benefiting from that is the company who makes the, the, the breakers, right? Nobody has had a problem with their house burning down because the breaker didn't trip. That's not a thing that happens. Like, and the times that that does happen where a house burns down because a breaker didn't trip, it either the breaker was defective or a GFI breaker wouldn't have, have tripped anyway. Uh, and so I don't know. It's just it's kind of frustrating because it does oftentimes appear, even if nobody can prove it, that a lot of these organizations and a lot of these regulations are put into place by people who want to keep the small guy out. And I guess that can be kind of frustrating when you're the small guy trying to get your business off the ground. Well, never, never having. Um, I mean, I've been like I said, I've been running network cable for twenty years mm-hmm. for the school system. I sure. work and come to find out that there there only has to be one licensed electrician. Right in the entire company, mm-hmm. and anyone else that he deems is comp- uh, um, competent enough to wire up an outlet is allowed to wire up an outlet. I really? I to be an electrician. That's what, the, that's what the fire marshal told me. I don't have to be an electrician. As long as our county electrician, master electrician, says I am competent enough to do it, I can go do it, which is why I've not needed a license for low voltage for the last 20 years. Interesting. So that is different. That is different than than North Dakota. North Dakota, uh, at least for small. So, okay. So for electrical code, if you want to run line level voltage, you have to either be an electrician or you have to be as part part of a journeyman program. So you have to be, you know, I don't know what you call it, electrician in training, I guess. 
if you want to do low voltage, you're right. There only has to be one person in the company that is an electrician, but anybody else that wants to run wire in North Dakota, anyway, my understanding is that if each one of those people has to have a low voltage uh, wiring permit. And I, I could be wrong on that. I'm not an expert. I am not an expert on, on electrical wiring, so by no means take my word for this stuff and pay other people to handle it. But well, that's my understanding. I, I want to clarify. I want to clarify that because we are a school system and we are a business of sorts, we have our own electrician. Mm. If a uh, contractor comes in, every contractor that comes in must have a license. Okay. Now, because we are our own business, we only need one in the business, and because I I'm see. employed by the business, I fall under that category, which is why I I've not needed anything for low voltage. I, I, uh, okay, I, I that makes more that. sense. So because if you're doing it within your own business, in other words, so it'd be, it's not dissimilar yeah. to saying, so in North Dakota, for example, I can go pull electrical wire in my house, no problem. When I go to land yeah. it, now I need an electrician to walk in and go, yep, you did that right. Or, or I have to pull a self-wiring permit, exactly. land it myself, and then have an, uh, an inspector come in and go, yep, you did that right. But, uh, but yeah, uh, so, and it would be kind of similar, I guess, if you were talking about just extending that to your own business then. Well, long story short, if you run a business, check the licensing codes in your state. Hey, can Especially I pick... if you have clients you're running for. Can I pick your brain about something totally unrelated? Sure. So, so, you, so you and I have, for the most part, your and my business model are almost identical, right? Like you and I... We deal with the same amount of customers. You and I have essentially a daily, sometimes not daily because I get tied up with other stuff, but if if not daily, at least a weekly conversation going about something in the IT trade. And um, there's really only been one or two things that you and I have kind of diverged on and gone and gone slightly different routes. And so one of those things is routers. And so I, I have been very happy with the, the Microtech routers and have been using them for years. And you've kind of gone a different direction with that. You've used the, unif- the, the uh, Ubiquiti Security Gateway. And um, so I, I've played with them. I own a couple of them. We've got them here in the lab that I've played with a little bit. I, I keep getting questions from people uh, looking to implement them. And I'm just wondering if you've run into any issues with there are two complaints that I have about them. I'm wondering if any of them have been an issue for you. The first is there's no real DNS management. So there's no way to tell it. Uh, here is a host name and I want it to resolve to this IP address. Have you run into that at all? It hasn't been a problem for you. Yeah, it, it is. And, and I resolved it by using a server in house in place of that DNS. Oh, okay. So you just have like bind running or something like that or whatever, but you have some other server running. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that is that is very very frustrating because yeah, I might want a server in my in my house. I don't mm-hmm. have a a bind server running at home. I just know all my IP addresses. Right. You know, my kids don't know that. So if they want to get to my freenas or my media box, you know, I sure. can't tell them type freenas.local. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I don't I do not have a fix for that unless you use uh it as a forwarder to an external DNS, I, I do not know of a fix. And the, I've not the one, the one that I the the answer I got from Ubiquity when I raised this concern with with some colorful, uh, you know, phraseology to them was there is a way to implement it, but it involves custom writing a file and placing it in a very specific yes. place. Uh, so it's like it's totally unsupported. It's kind of like a hack a hack a hack around solutions. I'm not real impressed with it. So okay, so the second thing I've run into if I'm that not mistaken, it's a JSON. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So yeah. the second thing I've run into that's that's been a cause of frustration, why I've kind of held off on ever putting these things in production is 
it, it, my understanding from configuring, you you open the th- you you buy the thing, you plug it in, you turn it on. It defaults to an IP address of 192.168.0.1 or 1.1, whatever it is. You log into the web interface, and the only thing it asks you is what's the controller IP address. And you put in that controller IP address, and then everything else is configured from the controller. So by by proximity then, should the controller ever fail, I lose the ability to manage my security gateway, my firewall, and my router. Am, Am I understanding that right? I'm grinning and saying yes. Okay. I, I just, here's the thing. I, the reason the I ask. short of it is, I have it in two places. I have it at home so I can support the one business I put it in. And I see <laughs> all your unified frustrations come to fruition. And, uh, yeah. I, you know, it's funny you say that. It's funny you say that. I have, I have two, ne- well, I have three networks that run in my house. The first is my stable. That's the network I'm on and nobody touches it. Nobody messes with it. And I'm not going to tell you what's on it because it's literally, I, it's just my network. And then the other one is a guest network that I kind of play around with a little bit. And, and that's when people come over to the house. That's what they connect to. But I've got a third network and the third network I use for, you know, friends come over and they want a game because the guest inter- the guest network only goes out to the internet, drops all local traffic, and just sends everything out through the gateway. Um, but the third network allows for local network traffic. It's a totally separate VLAN, totally separate DHCP server, totally separate everything, different router, different switch, a whole nine yards. And uh, what I tell people, normal people anyway, is, well, that's the network that we use for gaming. It's the network I use for this, that, or the other. The truth of the matter is the reason that the entire existence of that network was born out of, hey, Cisco released the new ASA. I hate Cisco's ASA, but I guess I better learn how to manage it because somebody is going to buy one at some point, and I'm going to have to manage the thing. Guess the Cisco ASA is going on that third network. And it it literally exists for me to learn about various different technologies. It's kind of funny, too, because I get some of my tech friends that come over, and they're like, you have a sonic wall? I'm like, eh, on that network I do because I have to know how to manage it. Um, but that's the, <laughs> that's the only reason that that network exists is so I can learn about networking stuff. But I've I've got a lot I, I of. I thought your Sonic walls went in file thirteen. They did now, but they the, the here's the thing: Sonic Wall, the company has gone into file thirteen. They they were a great company, or they I shouldn't say they were great. They were an okay company. They got up by Dell. Dell trashed them. It was funny. I went to Dell. I visited Dell, and I'm walking around and noticing none of their access points are Sonic Wall. And I I, I just kind of laughed and I went, Hey, y'all know that uh, everybody else hates Sonic Wall too, right? And they're like, Yeah, we know. It's just it's just it was it's just, terrible decision did not work out so dell destroyed that company and now they've just kind of gone down the tubes i don't know if there's anybody out there that is still installing sonic well i think most of those guys have gone to fortinet now but the, re- the reason i the reason i bring it up uh, chris the reason i bring it up and i wanted to talk about it on the air is because I-, I have i bet you i get an email probably two emails a week and probably a telegram a week from somebody saying hey i know you're a big fan of the of the ubiquity stuff i know you use their access points and their cameras and their switches and everything under the sun uh it, the the only thing that you don't seem to ever talk about or use is the gateway why is that and i'm like well there's a number of reasons why that i'm not a real fan of it and the, the thing that is so frustrating to me chris is like their controller the unify controller is the best, most comprehensive, most intuitive network interface I have ever seen in my entire life. The amount of data metrics and control that you have on 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 the Unify controller is second to none. And part of that functionality is only unlocked if you're using their security gateway. You don't get the throughput. You don't get the speed test. Yeah. You don't get the deep packet inspection, that's which is kind of exactly creepy, I might have. 
that is exactly why I was pushing so hard to, to get it in my clients, uh, in, in to replace, honestly, I replaced a Microtech with it. Uh, but I wanted the metrics. They were curious because they are a museum and they do have people and they wanted to know how much Wi-Fi traffic was going on. And I, and I, and I couldn't do it any other way because I'd gone with Unify. And right. So, yeah, the metrics that that thing pulls is amazing, but it's the features ki- it lacks is really starting to grate on me. It's it's kind of creepy, honestly. I mean, you can tell you can tell how many people are on social media. You can tell how many people are are downloading movies. You yeah. can tell how many people are transferring files just within the land. You can tell how many people are on messaging services. I wonder. I wonder if they worked with Google to design that. <laughs> I think they had a partnership with the NSA. They developed it under. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, I, I bring that up. Like I say, I probably get two questions a week on that. So I, I just I want since I had you on the line, I figured I'd bring it up and just discuss it out in the open. But th- th- that's the reason I, I would love nothing more for Unify to implement. Their, if, if Unify implemented a local control so I didn't have to use the controller, I, I want the ability to adopt it. But I also want the ability to manage it locally in case the controller falls offline. And if they need any inspiration to do that, look at their camera model because that works flawlessly. Right. If you don't have a controller online, the camera just has a web interface. You can view the camera thing like that's all you need to do. You just log into the camera and it just works just like you would expect a camera to do. Oh, by the way, it has an RTMP feed. So if you want to use it with a third party DVR, hey, you can go ahead and do that. If you want to adopt it in a controller, they give you that option, too. That, to me, is the perfect balance between having a managed system and having an open system. An access point system, I'm perfectly fine saying that there's a prerequisite that I have a controller because, frankly, I'm not going to go program. Like, it makes sense to say I like local access to the access points to control it, and that sounds good and dandy until you go to install 500 access points in a, in a seven-story hotel. And all of a sudden, installing configuring access points one by one by hand doesn't sound so much fun anymore. And so what you wind up doing is right. you, you, you thank God that there is such a thing as a controller that you can put in the configuration once at all 500 access points in about three seconds pick up that config and, and start operating that way. Um, but I, that should not be that way with the security gateway. It should not be that way with the firewall because as an attacker, from a penetration standpoint, if I can attack, if once I gain access to the router, my very next step is to take that controller offline because once I take that controller offline, you as the user have no ability to kick me back out. You can't even tell if I'm in your network. Uh, you've lost all ability to manage your network. So I, it's, it's a massive security concern for me. But the other thing is like, I just don't like not having control of the single is single device that connects me to the rest of the world. I, I hate I hate sidelining uh, half your show, but oh, you're uh, fine. Or, but um, so you started talking about video, and you wanted to discuss video. I don't know if you've gotten my messages, but take a look at Shinobi Video. Okay, as another NVR option. Uh, I would put it in the chat room, but I'm in a parking lot. No, that's fine. Shinobi. Uh, I have been messing with it. I think it's S-H-S-H-O. Yeah, I found it. S-H-I-N-O-B-I, simple CCT NVR solution. Yeah, okay. So this is an open source solution, and they have a pro section, so you're able to purchase a pro license or use the community open source. So tell me about this. What kind of cameras does it work with? Well, it does uh, RTMP streams, so... Um, so you can I use the Ubiquiti right cameras if you wanted to. Camera. Yes, I, I only had one free, and I'm using it. Uh, 
the farthest I got with messing with it was recording uh, for 24 hours, and that only took up like 1.14 gigs of space, which wasn't bad for a 24-hour stream. It saves it in 50 meg chunks, so you you know you just download it. Uh, I don't really the interface is a little clunky, but you and I had that discussion about all NVRs seem mm-hmm. to be. Yeah, yeah, they all are clunky except for Unify. Unify is beautiful. I mean, the Unify NVR interface is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, It it, it is the most flawless user interface ever. And what's interesting was, and and Chris and I were having this discussion offline, I took a a $10,000 security camera system that was purchased by a client, and we compared it. I compared it, I guess, but to to uh, to unify a five hundred dollar Unify NVR, which you don't even have to buy. You can just spin a you can spin the controller. It's Debian. You can spin the controller if you add the PPA into Debian. You install the software and it'll run on there just fine too. But uh, I, I I I was comparing that ten thousand dollar custom solution or um you know proprietary solution to the to the Unify system. And uh, honestly, the Unify system had the same features, but the UI was just way better. The complaint that I have with the the Unify system is simply that it's so locked in. You can only use Unify cameras with that system. And their camera lineup is is lacking, for lack of a better way. I mean, there's no PTZ, so you can't do pan, tilt, zoom. They don't really have a a big lens selection. They have a couple little add-ons that you can use to get some extra magnification or some extra night vision. But really, you don't have any – you don't really have any – Eating camera selection. And then last but not least is, frankly, they make the same camera three different ways. Like the G3 Dome and the G3 Bullet Cam are basically yeah. the same camera in a different housing. So it really doesn't get you anything. Right. Anyway, that's a, that's a great discussion. So, I, I appreciate yeah. it, Chris. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's one 855 4506 The email, live at com. We'd love you to join the Show and add your voice to the conversation. So, <laughs> wow, that, that really did take up more time than we thought. That's okay, though. That's what we want. You know, you two can add your voice to the conversation. And, you know, one, of the, uh, one, one thing that we are looking to do, we haven't exactly figured out how to structure this, but one of the things that we're looking to do is kind of restructure the show from just ask questions to add your voice to the conversation. Add your voice to the conversation and the discussion. And so if you're a person that uh, likes to participate in the show, um, we'd love to, to collect a group of you that are interested in participating and and, and have di- add different voices. Because again, I'm just not that smart. Like There's plenty of people that can add uh, their experiences and their thoughts. 1910 is shipping in October. And guess what it includes? That's right. ZF S installation option into 1910. And so this is huge to me. By the way, tight in the chat room says they're adding text to the conversation. I love it. Uh, you can add text to the conversation by joining the Ask Noah Show chat room, Ask Noah Show in Freenode. Uh, so ZFS uh, predates the uh, the uh, the ButterFS file system by several years. And ZFS, uh, or excuse me, ButterFS is just a, a colossal disaster, if you ask me. Um, they... At one point, two years ago or three years ago, admitted that it was no longer a, a, a stable file system, and it's got all these little quirks. If you want to use it, technically you still can, um, but you have to store your data in less than a certain percentage of the available space. I mean, it's just it's a pain. Don't do that. Don't do that to yourself unless you have a really good reason. Um, but it is more reliable. It is more performant than ButterFS. ZFS is more reliable, more performant than than ButterFS. The downside to using ZFS is licensing 
the ZFS file system is tangled up in all sorts of licensing issues. But to be honest with you, my answer to that is Linux itself, the Linux kernel itself has been tied up in licensing issues in the past, and we've not let that stop us before. We just continue to move on. Quote, we spent time looking at the licensing issue, which applies to Linux kernel and to ZFS, and concluded that we're acting within the rights granted and in compliance with the terms of license uh, with both license, they say. Ubuntu 19.10 will include an experimental option to install the distro with a ZFS root file system, a feature possible in large part thanks to the work of ZFS on Linux project. Quote, by working towards adding support for ZFS, the root file system will bring the benefits of ZFS to users through an easy-to-use web interface, in, or excuse me, easier-to-use interface and automated opera- operations abstracting some of the complexity while still allowing flexibility for power users, Canonical say. ZFS on Linux is a desktop Ubuntu file system, is an exciting prospect, but it's important to remember that for now it remains experimental, not the default, and is best used by those who can handle the, the suplex and body slams that the advanced file system often throw. So, couple things there. First of all, It may be experimental on Linux, but it's literally the Cadillac of file systems in the enterprise. In fact, recently, I worked on an exceptionally large project that was moving large Ceph clusters over to a custom ZFS solution. Uh, And the reason that they did that was because they wanted the reliability, they wanted the security, they wanted the trustworthiness of ZFS, and they knew that it had an industry backing. They knew its reputation, so that's why they wanted to go to it. And frankly, their Ceph file system was was a joke. Um, One of the things that has put us ahead of other operating systems for the longest time is Linux's modular approach to things, right? Nobody else is paying attention to file systems. Nobody. The reason that you're still on NTFS on Windows is because it's not marketable for Microsoft to come out and say, hey, we're going to develop a new file system. That's a difficult feature set to sell something around. Nobody cares. NTFS works good enough. It doesn't, but it works good enough. And so people are fine with it. The reason that macOS has had the same file system for the last 25 years and is just now getting around to redoing it. And by the way, the way they're redoing it is basing it off of ZFS, essentially. The reason that they haven't done that is it's not sexy. There's no reason. There's no marketing. There's no branding behind it. That's not some new feature they can sell. So they just leave it alone. And much like FFmpeg, last week I told you, FFmpeg on Linux is one of the most prolific tools ever to exist on Linux. And it's one of the things that makes everybody on every other operating system jealous and makes them all want to come over to to Linux. I have friends that work in the IT enterprise sphere who couldn't care less about Linux. I mean, they couldn't give two thumbs on on which distro I use or anybody else uses, and they don't have any clue or any any intention or any motivation to ever try Linux themselves. But they know what ZFS is, and they deploy it right and left, backwards and forwards. Why? Because it's a reliable, trustworthy operating system. And so we have that ability to do that on Linux. As ZFS, as that project continues to move forward, and ZFS becomes a real option for us on Linux, that's going to be huge. You better believe, even in its experimental form, I'm absolutely installing ZFS on root on my hard drive. The only thing that will keep me from doing that is I need to verify that the encryption will work. If there's some way to get encryption from work, because part of our company policy is if my laptop ever gets stolen, obviously we do customer documentation and, and all sorts of things on there. I can't afford to have that information getting out into the open. So there'll have to be some sort of support for encryption. Up until now, I've been unable to find if any such support exists, but if that happens, I will absolutely 
be making this change over to ZFS. And so if you haven't played with ZFS, you should definitely try it out. Go download FreeNAS today. Again, we'll have a link in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Download the FreeNAS ISO. Install it on a spare box. You don't need anything powerful. Heck, I've had FreeNAS running on a P4 before. Is it going to be the fastest thing in the world? No, but it'll get you by and you'll have an opportunity to play with it. It's more cost effective to buy more drives and put them in a network attached storage array, put all of your data on it, and then use ZFS to back that data up onto other drives than it is trying to purchase individual drives. And the Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JTR producer. We got plenty more content for you at AskNoahShow.com. We'll see you next week. <laughs>